Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. Jonah, obviously, is an Old Testament prophet that, again, for many of us, Jonah's famous more in Sunday school classes than he has ever been in our adult experience. Uh, For many of you, you may have never heard somebody speak on this book before. And if you have, we'll talk about likely what they covered here in a moment. Jonah is often seen maybe as the first great fishing story. No, he really was this big. I mean, he had to be to swallow a guy. This is a whole uh, a whale of a tale for some, maybe even for some. Uh, it's very similar to the fictional account of Moby Dick, right? And Captain Ahab, some pictures I've seen actually of Jonah, they actually picture Jonah being swallowed by the same kind of whale that was fighting against Captain Ahab. Often, if you've heard any message or preaching on this book, there's great attention dedicated to the probability of the events in the book, primarily a man being swallowed by a fish. I've seen pictures of the potential fish in sermons, and they say, see, that fish probably could swallow a guy. Folks, you do understand that the accounts in this story are absolutely supernaturally accomplished by God. I don't know how a man could be swallowed by a fish and stay inside for three months or three days and have no ill effects when he spit out on shore. This is all supernatural. God supernaturally accomplished this. And I think that absolutely we believe that it's true. We'll talk about that more in a second. So is the prophecy of Jonah a whale of a tale? It's actually not. And and we're not going to spend really much time on that particular piece of the story. Because bluntly, that's not really the point. The theme and message of Jonah are essential to understanding this book. And often, because we're overwhelmed with the spectacular events of the book, we don't really focus on the message. Now, Jonah is unique in one sense. Do you realize that Jonah is the only prophetic book that does not address Judah or Israel? This book is not about them. This book is about something else entirely. Which is fascinating. It's the only prophetic book that doesn't focus on the Jewish people. And actually, to, to exactly opposite of that, it focuses on pagans. It focuses on unbelievers. It focuses on Gentiles throughout. So as we begin this study this morning together, what I want you to note with me this morning in chapter 1 is this. You and I must accept and obey the revelation Of God, because resisting will bring sobering consequences. Now, 
As always, I think it's important for us to understand a little bit about this book before we dive in. So first of all, the the historical reality of this book. Jonah is hotly contested, partially because if you don't really want to believe in miracles, this is a tough book to get past. The whole book feels like a giant miracle over and over and over again. I mean, think about this storm that arises once they get out on the sea. Think about this storm stopping the moment Jonah's thrown overboard. Think about a fish swimming up and swallowing him. Not just that, but keeping him for three days and spitting him out on dry land three days later. That's pretty amazing, right? But listen, maybe the most incredible of all the miracles in this book is the transformation of one of the most wicked and vile cities in history, Nineveh. And it's not just a a group. The the author of, of Jonah makes it abundantly clear this was everybody, even their animals, partook in this. I mean, it's amazing. And so it's easy for those who would struggle with the miraculous to say, certainly, Jonah's just kind of a pretty incredible story, and there's a point there somewhere, but it can't possibly be true. Well, I think for us, obviously, it is true, and in part I think it's true because Jesus references it, both Matthew and Luke reference Jesus referring to this, Matthew, on two different occasions. Jesus brings up this account of Jonah and what Jonah does and the sign of Jonah. And and we'll talk about that more in a little bit. The other piece is that Jonah's a real guy. In 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25, this very real prophet prophesied at the time of Amaziah. And it tells us in 2 Kings 14, 25, he restored Israel's borders from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel had spoken through his servant, the prophet Jonah, son of Amati from Gath Hefer. And so this is a real God. We have a real account of his prophecy at another time about the people of Israel. But this time it's not about that. The subject is interesting, and I'm not certain that we say that Jonah is the author. Maybe Jonah is the author, but we don't know for sure. But the account, the subject of this prophecy is Jonah in many respects. It's about him. Now, Jonah is a fascinating character uh, in this account, and he is because of his self-righteousness. We see that immediately in chapter 1. Jonah is self-righteous. Jonah thinks he's right. Jonah thinks he's godly. Jonah thinks because he's right and because he's godly that the Ninevites have no business being told to repent. God should just destroy them because that's what they deserve. Why? Because Jonah's righteous in his mind. And what I want you to note, and I think that this is critical for us to understand, when you are self-righteous, when you consider that you know God's word 
And oftentimes, those who struggle with this, they perceive that they know it better than everybody else. Like, I I, kind of have a special understanding that you don't get. Well, this is is the self-righteousness, and we'll see it with Jonah. But this self-righteousness makes him uncaring. It makes him uncompassionate. And if we're not careful, we immediately, when we hear that about Jonah, we can think, man, what a rascal. But in Jonah, you can see us. I can see me in Jonah. Have you ever been mad that God showed mercy to someone when you thought they didn't deserve it? You ever been irritated by that? Have you ever thought in your mind, that person deserves to be judged? And I'm struggling right now because I don't see that. Congratulations, Jonah. Right? This, this is the issue. They deserve wrath, not mercy. And that's Jonah's struggle through all four chapters. The book, in many ways, very ironically, it just concludes with this kind of open-ended question from God to Jonah. And then silence. And it's just kind of left hanging there. Being self-righteous blinds us to the way we treat other people. Being self-righteous blinds us to the burdens of others. It blinds us to the needs of others. Being self-righteous causes us, like Jonah, to be uncaring, to be uncompassionate, to be judgmental, to be even harsh at times. Hey, get this, in the name of righteousness. I can be mean, I can be cruel, I can be unkind. Why? Because I'm righteous, I get it, and you don't. This is Jonah throughout the book. Now what's fascinating is none of those characteristics actually reflect the character of God as is it's revealed to us in Jonah. The God that is on display for us in Jonah is a God of compassion and a God of mercy and a God is, who is considering the ones he has made. He cares for them. He cares for their needs and their struggle. The layout of the book is fairly simple. It actually works out perfectly in English. You have four chapters, and those kind of are the four stages of the story. And those stages kind of repeat throughout. The theme of the book, and I'll repeat this every week, because I think it makes the book, at least to me, leap off the page. The theme of this book throughout is God's compassion leads him to merciful and gracious acts of deliverance If, if we will, if you will, move toward him. Now, we'll talk about this a lot in the the weeks to come, today and in the weeks to come. But I want you to think for a moment as we approach it. What do you think the sailors truly understood about God? And yet when God was revealed to them, even in the smallest amount, what did they do? They moved toward him. When the Ninevites are confronted, and bluntly, Jonah didn't even do a good job. He still wasn't there with the right attitude, right? His message is about four words, that's it. 
Repent, because God's going to destroy your city. In Hebrew, that's about four words. That was his message. And the people turned. And fascinating, do you realize in both cases, in chapter 1 and in chapter 3, it is not Jonah that says, God will show you mercy if you will respond. The captain says, maybe if we respond, maybe if we call out to God, he'll spare us. The king says in chapter 3, verse 9, maybe God will not judge us. Not destroy us if we repent. Maybe. In both cases, they respond. With the limited knowledge they have, they respond. And God pours out mercy. This is our God. And I think we'll see it throughout the book. So, again, as we walk through this passage today, you and I must accept and obey the revelation of God. Because resisting it, It could bring horrific consequences. So first we see verses 1 through 3. You see the call and then the response by Jonah. The call of God and the response by Jonah. The opening words of this book are this vivid reminder that God is a God of revelation. God is a God of communication. God has told you what you need to know. What will you do with it? God has spoken. What will you do with that? What will you do with the word of God? Well, Jonah, the word comes to him as we heard John read a few moments ago. And it's very clear in verse 2, get up. At first, it's go to this great city. And then the second thing he says is preach. Now, preach is a word that actually could be translated simply call out or proclaim. Now, that's going to be important in a moment. But the message comes, get up. Get up, go to Nineveh, and call out to them. And with no response at all, Jonah says, no way. I will not Go preach to those wicked, vile, horrible, mean, cruel Ninevites. They are the worst people on the planet. And I am not going to tell them about God. And so he runs. He flees from the message of the Lord immediately. And the truth is, for us as believers, and I challenged us with this last week as we began a new year together, you and I need the word. We need the word this year. In truth, we need the word every day. And if you don't make a plan for approaching God's word, if you don't make a plan for how you're going to engage the word, guess what? You won't do it. You might do it for a week. You might do it for three weeks. But you know what? You won't keep going if you don't have something you're shooting at. How will you engage the word of God this year? It's critical. Because just like Jonah, we're confronted with the word. What are we going to do with the word of God? Now, in verse 2, at the end of the verse, he tells him, go to the city and call out against it. Why? Because their evil has come up before me. Now, this 
is that storytelling that I'm telling you the Hebrew writer does. It's almost like on uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner, you have somebody in the kitchen cooking and you're in a different room. And as you sit there, it's like the old cartoon where you see the smell wafting through the house and then it goes into somebody's nostril, right? That's exactly the idea here of their sin, of their evil. It has come up before the Lord. It is in his presence. He gets it. He knows it. He understands it. And he will not tolerate it anymore. It must be addressed. This is the vivid imagery. Now, this word evil is a fascinating word. Because it's used in six different ways throughout the Old Testament. It's used more than 400 times. But of those six ways, two that it's used in particular is of evil or wickedness or sin. That's how it's used here in verse 2. But it's also used of disaster or calamity, even in the sense of natural disaster. So guess what? Our word evil is going to show up again in verse 7 and 8. But it's going to show up as a different English word. It shows up as disaster or calamity. Because this is natural. This is the sea. But it's the same word. And so it's interesting to note that this evil here also describes an evil that's natural. That in a sense, the people don't have any control over this natural disaster or calamity or harm. Now, the truth is for us, many times when we think about evil in the world, it can frustrate us. It can overwhelm us. But what I want us to note is, as God comes to to Jonah and tells him to go prophesy to these people because the evil has come up, you know what it acknowledges? God is fully aware of the evil on the earth. God is fully aware of the evil in our day. Sometimes if we're not careful, we can get really overwhelmed by the evil in our world and think in our minds, ah, this is, this is terrible. Everything's going wrong. Everything's bad. But folks, even more important than that, God is aware of the evil in me. He's aware of the evil in you. You know those secret thoughts, those secret actions that you think no one knows about? God knows. He's fully aware of what you're thinking and what you're doing. And at times what you're saying. And you think, ah, nobody knows. God knows. God knows. Verse 3 He goes on, and and Jonah now, he's going to flee. And twice in verse 3, we're told that Jonah is going to flee to Tarshish, what? From the presence of the Lord. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you're a prophet of God, if you're a prophet of the living God, how do you think you're going to get away from the one that David describes in Psalm 103 as being everywhere all the time? If I go to the depths of the sea, he's there. If I make my bed in Hades, he's there, right? If I ascend into heavens, he's there. Doesn't matter where I go, God's there. How does a prophet of God think he's going to escape from the presence of Yahweh? Well, there's three potential options. First of all, 
Jonah is potentially thinking in his mind that he is going to force God's hand. And by forcing God's hand, God will banish him. And for Jonah, being banished would be better than preaching repentance to the Ninevites. That'd be better. The second potential is that Jonah no longer wants to be in the service of the Lord. He no longer wants to be a prophet. If I have to go preach to them, I'm done. I want no part of that. The third potential option is Jonah is thinking that God is the God of Israel. If he can get himself outside of Israel, outside of that place where God is speaking, then maybe he can avoid it. Now, the truth is this. When we listen to that, when we think through that for half a second, we think, how could Jonah have come to that conclusion? That was silly. And it was. And yet, how often do you and I deceive ourselves into thinking that we can control our own circumstances? That we can control the call of God? That we can control the message of God? You know what? Yeah, I know the Bible says that, but... I don't think that applies to my situation. I don't think that applies to my circumstance. Folks, we all do it. We've all done it. Some of us have done it this week. Some of us have done it this morning. God's truth doesn't apply to my situation. Well, this is exactly what Jonah does. And in so doing, he literally rejects the word of God. Have you ever rejected the word of God because you refuse to obey? You refuse to follow. You refused to submit. So, so this is the, the framework for where we find Jonah. So Jonah now hops on a boat, verses 4 through 6. He gets on this boat. They get out into the sea. And immediately uh, you've got a storm. So as Jonah flees and he finds himself in this unbelievable predicament, he finds himself in this predicament with these pagan sailors. And the Lord, uh, obviously Yahweh, he is the one at work in this scenario. And he tells us that in verse 4. It says, but the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea. God brought that wind. Now listen, here's what's fascinating. And the reason that this is important is you see the word through there in verse 4. The word through will happen again in verse 5. The word throw will happen in verse 12. And the word throw will happen again in verse 15. That's all the same word. God throws a storm. The sailors throw cargo. Jonah says you'll have to throw me overboard. And then the sailors throw Jonah overboard. You see that? I mean, it's interesting, right? All right, maybe it's only interesting to me. So God throws this storm, and it's it's an unbelievable storm. So much so that the ship says, I'm going to break apart. Now again, this is kind of the storytelling of the Hebrew writer. But the CSB does a good job of framing it exactly as it is in the Hebrew. It was such a great storm that the ship threatened. The ship, this is how it is. Explained in Hebrew. The ship is saying, I'm going to break apart in this storm. Now we all know ships don't say that. But this is descriptive so that we get the idea this storm was really, really severe. 
The sailors are terrified. They begin to throw the cargo off of the ship to lighten the load to try and make it through the storm. And in the middle of that, where is Jonah? He's gone down below and he is fallen into a deep sleep. Now here's the thing. This is very interesting. This is not a nap. This is not your Sunday afternoon snooze. You're in, you're out. You know, when I was a kid, I remember we'd sit there on Sunday afternoons and we'd wait for my dad to start snoring. And as soon as he did, one of us would grab the remote and my dad would say, don't turn that. <laughs> right? Say, how? How? I thought he was asleep. You know? So we put the remote back. Two minutes later, he snore. We grab the remote. He'd say, don't touch that. Man. That's not this. This is the same description that is used of Adam when God takes a rib and creates Eve. This is that sleep. And what it speaks to is this. Jonah is so mad. Jonah is so maybe depressed. He is so upset. He couldn't care less if he dies. And he's laying in the bottom of that boat waiting for it to break apart and that'll be the end. Because he's not going to Nineveh. He will not. So he's in this boat sleeping. And the stark contrast is made between Jonah sleeping and the sailors actively trying to save their own lives. He goes on, verse 6. The captain then discovers there's a guy down below sleeping, right? So he, he goes down and he says, what are you doing sound asleep? Now note this. The captain says two things. What does he say? Get up and call out. What was God's message to Jonah in verse 2? Get up and call out. Boy, it's fascinating when you think about it. When God gives you a message, you can't get away. You know? That's exactly what happens here for Jonah. I don't know about you, but when you're late, when that's what you come awake to, get up and go call out, you're thinking, boy, I've heard that somewhere before. And I didn't like it the first time. God uses a pagan boat captain to remind Jonah of the message. To remind Jonah of the call. And what you will see for the next several verses is God using pagans to rehearse, to remind, to demonstrate his message to his prophet, to his own prophet. Jonah now, verses 7 through 12, Jonah now enters, goes back up on deck, with the rest of the crew and uh, the sailors now, they decide we, we got to figure out who, whose fault this whole storm is. They've decided that this is divine, that the gods, whichever one it might be, is mad at somebody on that boat. Now think about this for a moment. The prophet of God could have spoken into this scenario and he offers not a word. So much so that the pagan sailors, again, take it into their own hands to find direction from God. And for us, when we think about casting lots, it's easy for us to think about that as kind of a pagan 
ritual. But in the Old Testament, there were numerous times, and we could look at those, discuss those, but that this practice was used to determine God's direction. So don't let that distract you. That's exactly what these pagan sailors do. They cast lots, and uh, the method we could talk about would be a great discussion for our Q&A. We won't do it right now. But they are seeking divine direction as they cast lots. They want to know whose fault this is. And God shows them exactly that. This is Jonah's doing. Jonah is the man. And again, we have in verse 7 and 8, our word for evil, it comes back up. If you look there in the middle of verse 7, he says, Then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble, this calamity, this disaster that we're in the middle of. And they use it again. Tell us who is to blame for this trouble. They say this once the lot falls to Jonah. And once it does, they ask him four questions. Now, these questions are fascinating. And his response is even more fascinating. All right. So the four questions are, who are you? Right? We'd like to know who it is that's going to end up killing us. Who are you? What is your occupation? What do you do for a living? Where are you from? And who are your people? What's your country? Who are your people? Now, here's what's interesting. Jonah flips those questions. He answers the last two first. He says, first, I am a Hebrew. And then Jonah very intentionally identifies God as the God of the heavens. Why does he do that? Because very likely these are Phoenician sailors. Their God of the heavens who would have caused this raging sea is known as Baal Shemem. He's the Lord of heaven. And Jonah says, no, 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 no. Yahweh, he is really the God of the heavens. Now stop for a second before you amen. Stop for a second and think about this. Self-righteous Jonah. You idiots don't even know who's in control of this storm right now. I do. I know him and I worship him. And shame on all of you. This is Jonah on the deck of a ship that will be destroyed. It's threatening to break apart. Why? Because he doesn't really worship Yahweh. Not in his living He knows the right theology, but it's not affecting his life. Is that not amazing? In a very self-righteous way, Jonah tells them who he is. I'm, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the one true God, the God of the heavens. He's the creator of all. It's the creator of the dry ground. It's the creator of the sea. And yet Jonah never, in chapter 1, displays one bit of worship. You know who does? The pagan sailors. We'll get there in a minute. This is the trouble. It's the height of self-righteous hypocrisy from Jonah. His self-righteous attitude, it blinds him to what he's actually doing. It blinds him to what he actually is living. How often... Do you and I engage unbelievers in the same way? In kind of this self-righteous, you just don't get it sort of way. 
rather than demonstrating the kind of compassion and mercy that our God is going to demonstrate throughout this account. Do we demonstrate this to those around us, those who are our neighbors, those who are acquaintances, those we work with? What about in our home? Do we demonstrate this? Sometimes that's the hardest place to live these truths is with those that we rub elbows with most closely. Verse 10, it goes on, and they respond now to his sermonette in verse 10. So then the men, they're overwhelmed by fear. Why? Well, because of who he is and who he worships, right? Who his God is. Likely they've heard of this God. And so they say to him, what is it you've done? What have you done to upset your God? And so the men knew that he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had already communicated that. He's already admitted that. God's told me to do something, I'm running from it. And they say, you know, they kind of offer their own sermonette. What are you doing? You know? And so he goes on in verse 11 and they say, okay, so what are we going to do with you? How do we get this storm to stop? What are we going to do with you? Why? Because the sea was getting worse and worse. Now, what's interesting is, the again, the Hebrew description here. It's not worse and worse. That's how we translate it. But it literally, in the Hebrew, it is, the storm was walking and storming. Right? I mean, isn't that a vivid picture? A storm walking and storming as it goes? This is what's happening for them in the boat. And the Hebrew writer is portraying that for us. He goes on in verse 12. So Jonah tells them, he says, hey, here's here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to throw me. Just like God threw the wind and they threw the cargo, you're going to have to throw me overboard because this is my fault and I'm the one that should suffer the consequences. So he says, throw him over. And what, as we we shift to finally this storm uh, calming, what is their response? Okay, yeah, we'll throw you over. If we get rid of this, it'd be great. No. The character of these men is incredible in verses 13 and 14. What do they do? They say, no, that's not an option for us. If we throw you over, you will die. So what do they do? They row as hard as they can. Right? They are going to get through this storm and not have this guy who's running from God die on their watch. Well, guess what happens? The more they row, the more they figure out, we're not getting out of this storm. It's like somebody bigger than us is fighting against us, right? Well, we we know that's what's going on, right? So now, verse 14, they pray. Now stop for a moment and think. These are pagans. And this is our first prayer to Yahweh. Jonah hasn't prayed. Captain came down, woke him up and said, pray to your God. Jonah hasn't prayed. No record of that. But the pagans, they now address Yahweh. They call out to God. And they make two requests. Number one, don't kill us because of this guy. Don't kill us because we were with him. We didn't know what we were working with. Second, we know he's going to die when we throw him in. Don't come back around and charge us for his death. Don't hold us responsible. Why? Well, because we figured out the end of verse 14. We figured out you're actually in charge. You're in control and you've sent this storm and you've done exactly what you pleased. 
This storm is your design and you're in control of it. So please don't hold us accountable for his death when we throw him in. This is their prayer. A prayer in some ways I find fascinating because it's offered by the pagans in the room and not the prophet of God. Verse 15, they throw him in. And immediately, the storm stops. And in response, verse 16, the sailors are overwhelmed with great fear. Now here's what's interesting. I don't think this is a terror that overwhelms them as much as a reverence. They just witnessed who God is. They, they just saw it for themselves. And they'd never be the same again. And that's evidenced by the response. They offer sacrifices. Likely, they did not offer sacrifices on the boat. This is a commitment to offer sacrifices to God when they get back to land. And they made vows. They made commitments to the Lord, to Yahweh. Because they learned on this day that there is no God like this God. They learn. And in the mercy of God, their lives are spared. And they realize that. They come to understand the display, the rich display of mercy. And here's what's fascinating. Remember Jonah's sermonette? What does he say? I worship. Think this through for a moment. These pagan sailors are the first ones in this chapter to genuinely worship. They worshiped God. They called out to Yahweh and they acknowledged his position. Exactly, actually opposite of Jonah. Despite his failure as a prophet, God actually uses Jonah to bring these pagan sailors to himself to understand the mercy that is available to them. Jonah failed miserably to understand this truth. That the creator of all actually cares for pagan sailors and for wicked Ninevites. And throughout this account, he is going to vividly demonstrate his care for them. Now, as we walk through this, I hope you can see the importance of accepting and obeying the revelation of God. Because resisting it could have sobering, sobering consequences. Now, let me clarify to avoid confusion. I'm in no way suggesting today that you will be swallowed by a great fish or be caught in an unbelievable storm. I'm not suggesting that. What I am suggesting, though, and it absolutely is the reality, there are real consequences to come if you and I refuse, as Jonah did, to accept and respond, obey the words of God. You will reap your resistance to God's direction, His instruction in your life. And here's the truth. Here's the, here's the first truth that you've got to grasp. The reality that God showed His mercy most tangibly, visibly, vividly in the coming and the work of Jesus on your behalf. Jesus came to this earth as we just celebrated as a baby to live a perfect sinless life 
to die on a cross in your place and in mine so that he could literally take my sins on him and that you could literally receive his righteousness on your account. This is the purpose. And that is a tangible, real demonstration of the mercy of God. If you have never responded to that offer of mercy, that's the first step. That's the first step. You must accept the mercy that's available to you in Christ. Today, do you understand that mercy? Have you responded to it? Have you accepted it? Today, as we begin considering this man, Jonah, are you self-righteous? Is that how you engage others? You know God's word. You have a tendency to kind of look down at somebody who doesn't know it like you do or like you perceive that you do. And because of that, at times, because of what you know, because of what you believe, because of the truths that you've come to understand, you don't often engage others with compassion, with care, with gentleness. But in truth, that is our God. He is compassionate. He is kind. He is gentle. He is Loving, And that ought to come through if we've genuinely experienced his mercy. God's grace is available to us. And in truth, we need God's grace. Because the reality is, all of us struggle in our humanness to be compassionate. To be caring. To be concerned about the needs, the hurts, the struggles of others. We're so prone to focus on us. My issues and my hurts and my suffering. And folks, we will see that in the life of Jonah in all four chapters. Jonah is concerned about Jonah. Why? Because he's self-righteous. He knows God. He knows what he knows. But it's not translating into his action. Does what you know translate into action? It's supposed to. And by God's grace it can We need grace so that it will. So let's bow together right now and ask God for that strength that's available to us in Christ. Let's pray.